Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from Gloucestershire in the British countryside at the Royal International Air Tattoo. Uh, so a quick apology if you hear a lot of people behind me ring our head as well as high-performance aircraft that are somehow managing to perform in the rain out here. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As opposed to our long customary introduction, we're going to get right to the point. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss the week in Washington and around the world, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and a co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the track relationship and somebody who spent a couple of days at a major NATO summit meeting that just happened to be in Vilnius and former Pentagon controller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his very many uh, and august affiliations. Everybody, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Uh, as always, uh, uh, Michael, uh, start us off. Uh, obviously, we've got, uh, you know, 1,500 some odd amendments uh, that made it uh, to the floor. Uh, obviously, a lot of activity uh, on the National Defense Authorization Act. I'm going to ask you about appropriations next, but tell us where we stand on the NDAA at the moment. Uh, well, NDAA is in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a different place than it was last week. I mean, last week we talked about how the NDAA was a bipartisan product. Uh, now, uh, House Republicans have taken this bipartisan product and unfortunately made it into an extremely partisan one. And it's really a result of the fact that uh, many of members of the hard right um, House Freedom Caucus threatened uh, to block the NDAA from getting to the floor by voting against uh, the rule. Uh, and because they wanted their amendments considered. You mentioned there were over 1,500 amendments. Obviously, they, there's no time to vote on all of those. Many of those amendments get ruled out of order, don't get considered. And the ones that they felt would be poison pills for the bill also usually don't get considered. However, the Freedom Caucus insisted on getting their amendments considered or else they were going to block the bill. Um, so later this in, in midweek, uh, McCarthy gave the Freedom Caucus uh, hardliners all the things that they demanded, uh, which were votes on many amendments dealing with the culture wars, uh, as well as, as Ukraine. And um, there was a side deal on the AUMFs, because we talked about that last week. So those are going to be voted on in September. So those are not going to be considered now as part of the NDAA. However, um, some of these uh, hard right uh, amendments did pass uh, yesterday, and then there's going to be more votes earlier today. And, and then final passage of the bill is expected uh, around 11 o'clock uh, uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, the uh, the key ones that have passed are the one first, the one by Ronnie Jackson, which would um, you know prohibit uh, the Department of Defense from covering travel expenses related to abortion care for service members, and that's something we've been talking about uh, for a long time. That could that that one amendment alone could has the potential to sink the NDAA by driving away right. uh, Democratic support. Um, there was another amendment passed uh, that would block the DoD from paying for transgender uh, 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 medical services. Uh, another one uh, would prohibit DOD uh, funding of transgender-related re medical services, uh, but one from Ralph Norman, another one from Matt Rosendale. Uh, Chip Roy had an amendment passed that would prohibit the department from establishing a chief diversity officer. Um, Roy had another one that would prohibit DOD funding from teaching critical race theory. Uh, so uh, these amendments, uh, uh, as they continue to pile up, chase more and more Democrats away. And in fact, uh, House Democratic leadership, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar, sent out a statement now opposing the bill. The Democrats are going to whip against it. Uh, they called it a reckless legislative joyride. And Adam Smith, who's the ranking Democrat in the committee, uh, put out a statement with his ranking members saying, the bill we passed out of the committee sent a clear message to our allies and partners, global competitors, and the American people that democracy still works and Congress can still function. That bill no longer exists. What was once an example of compromise and functioning government has become an ode to bigotry and ignorance. So tempers were really right. flaring last night. And even some Republicans I was texting with saying we're really playing with fire here. However, I do not expect all Republicans to vote for this bill, but it looks like there may be five or six Democrats that vote for it. If they get those five or six Democrats, that means they can lose nine or 10 Republicans on this vote. Because many of the Republicans uh, on the hard right uh, who wanted this, who wanted their amendments considered will still vote against the bill uh, because their amendments didn't pass. Like for example, 
many of the Ukraine amendments did not pass. The, the amendments to strip uh, the 300 million of Ukraine aid from the bill did not pass. Um, the amendment to prohibit security assistance to Ukraine did not pass. Uh, the amendment to strike language extending the Lend-Lease Authority to Ukraine did not pass. So many members can use that as an excuse to still vote against the bill. So it's, it's touch and go, but if I had to bet, I would bet that the NDAA does uh, pass uh, later this morning. I mean, I uh, the and I should say that we are recording this uh, early uh, in the day um, and uh, given everybody's uh, availability and what Ronnie Jackson, uh, the president's or, or the physician, the many past presidents, uh, including Obama and uh, Donald Trump, uh, is, is trying to codify into law what Tommy Tuberville is trying to do with his holds. Right. I mean, effectively try to uh, turn something legislative as opposed to you know, just try to use the leverage by holding up 251 um, military promotions, including a whole bunch of critically important four-star general officers, right? I mean, uh, you know, and and uh, Jack Reed, the Senate Armed Services Committee chairman, has said it would take something like about 68 days of floor votes uh, in order, you know, eight hours a day to clear up. Well, it actually 84 days <laughs> is the exact number it would take. And that's exactly right. Uh, and as you know, I mean, Lloyd Austin um, and Tupperville did speak yesterday uh, so that I think that is progress. They both said that that conversation was productive um, and they've agreed to speak again next week. Um, but it's not just, you know, Tupperville's holds uh, that I think are affecting national security. We're up to now 270. And now Biden uh, just sent over 14 more nominees for critical posts in the Pentagon and for three and four star generals. But uh, J.D. Vance and Rand Paul, two other Republican senators, are now have holds on State Department and ambassadors. Uh, so now, um, you know, Vance's hold is on about 30 nominees. And it's kind of a little more nebulous because he's upset about some woke and progressive social policy. But Rand Paul has a blanket hold on State Department nominees, including all our ambassadors, uh, saying he's not going to let them proceed until the State Department hands over records about U.S. government-funded virus research. He says there's a link between the U.S. government and the origins of COVID, and he believes our government is hiding our association, especially when it uh, comes to gain-of-function research. So, uh, again, another major blow to our national security, but not having our ambassadors in place as well. Well, and and also having a U.S. lawmaker propagate sort of the propaganda that China been uh, propagating um, uh, for some time and then hinted at by Russians uh, and, and obviously uh, others uh, who wish the United States ill. Um, talk to us a little bit about appropriations because right authorization is half the battle, but the real power is with the appropriators. Sorry about that. I didn't mean to undermine any authorizers out there. Yes, because I think they're both equally as important. They both have their important roles to play in this process. And uh, yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks very much for cleaning that up for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. I've always got your back. So uh, in fact, I spoke to some of the senior defense appropriators last night, and they're waiting to see what happens in the NDAA and how that plays out to determine how they're going to proceed as well. And the House Freedom Caucus made it clear that they're going to do everything they can to muck up the works there as well. Uh, last Friday, uh, after we recorded, um, the House Freedom Caucus sent, you know, a, 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 to my opinion, a pretty rude letter uh, to Speaker McCarthy, uh, basically saying that the American people do not care about unity, absent unity of purpose and achievement. And they say in their letter, we therefore write to inform you that we cannot support appropriations bills that will reduce a top line discretionary spending level barely below the bloated FY23 level. Accordingly, please be advised that we plan to vote against any appropriations bills designed to achieve the approximately 1.56 trillion top line spending level. Um, uh, agreed to in the, in the, in the CAPS deal, uh, the debt deal, said so we expect the baseline appropriations to match the FY22 1.47 trillion level as we previously agreed upon. Uh, we urge you to hold floor consideration of these bills, uh, uh, 12 bills reported in the committee, and we, along with all the Americans, can assess the spending levels and their impact. Um, and also, they uh, again wrote about their opposition to any uh, supplemental uh, for Ukraine appropriations. So, um, Look, that process still does continue to limp along. The House uh, will have unveiled all their uh, 12 uh, appropriations bills uh, by the, this week. Um, many, we'll see if any are able to make it to the floor. Uh, the Senate will have marked up all their bills by July 27th. But you know, we haven't talked about the Senate NDAA. Senate NDAA has been unveiled. That will be on the floor next week. But as a result, that means there will be no floor time uh, for appropriations in the Senate until September. So uh, September is guaranteed to have a, a CR or shutdown or any combination of the two. Uh, and it's interesting because the, the Democrats are still threatening or, you know, that a shutdown, 
uh, because of the huge divide. Uh, at the same time, I spoke to one of uh, McCarthy's top confidants yesterday who says there's a 100 percent chance that the government is open on October 1st. So a lot remains to be seen there. Uh, in uh, Indeed. I mean, it's uh, it is uh, certainly a crazy time. And I just want to say you've been on this, you know, riding this horse and, and giving uh, this prognosis. Uh, a lot longer than everybody else, right? I mean, now increasingly folks are saying, hey, we know we think there might be a, a, a shutdown and we've been talking about it for some time. Um, our time is very tight because we're also going to lose Patrick if we don't get uh, to uh, all of the stuff that happened at the Vilnius Summit. Uh, and one of our number is joining us uh, briefly to discuss this and unfortunately is going to have to jump off. And it's Jim Townsend, uh, who has had an incredible uh, ride uh, and he's joining us from the airport uh, briefly. Uh, Jim, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, and I just wanted to, you know, have you uh, start us off on, you know, what were the key takeaways from this summit, right? I mean, a lot of discussions about divisions uh, in the alliance, you know, whether or not uh, Ukraine is being grateful enough uh, was a theme uh, that was discussed, some frustrations, uh, you know, across the board, as opposed to, um, you know, the message of unity that I think ultimately was stuck on what was uh, struck. That was a, a very, very consequential summit. Give us your takeaways. Well, well, yes, I think at the end of the day, they were able to show unity, but I think it was a rough road getting there. And uh, how widespread that's known, I don't know. But uh, in the early goings, uh, it was a hard road to, to, to go down to get consensus on what to say about Ukraine. And this hard road started weeks ago um, as nations were working on the communique, trying to figure out what the language could be. Uh, the polls were very strong uh, in the negotiations, trying to press for as much as they could for Ukraine. Um, Ukraine was also storming around as well. Um, and finally, the White House weighed in uh, after they got to the summit, particularly. Um, there was active involvement by the most senior levels of the, of the delegation trying to work language at the last minute on what to say about Ukraine. And uh, what happened was... Uh, the language was not very elegant. Uh, there was definitely issues with how the communique stated things, but more importantly, how things were packaged. There's more than just what you say in the communique. There's also the big assistance package and other initiatives like having a Ukraine-NATO uh, council. Uh, but, but those weren't packaged together, and so people didn't see that there was actually a lot in there for Ukraine, and Ukraine didn't realize that either. So there were bruised feelings um, after the communique came out and the tweet that came out by uh, by um, Zelensky, uh, where fingers were being pointed and there was a hurt feelings, frankly, on 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 a lot of sides within the alliance in terms of, um, you know, there wasn't enough uh, appreciation for what the West is doing. Um, Ukraine should never have come in with such high expectations and all this kind of thing. So in the middle of that summit you had a lot of damage control going on and that came that was that, that came to a head the next day where i think things could calm down i think uh ukraine and zelensky came out and and was a, uh, appreciative and i think uh the west uh nato and the u.s were better able to package together the various things that ukraine did come away with and could go back to kiev with and show that that they got something there so that helped at the last minute, pull together this idea of unity, pulling together this idea that um, that they were making progress in terms of getting Ukraine, um, and you know, ready to get into the alliance at some point. But uh, still, I think uh, as we left the the uh, NATO forum, which is the the side events there for the summit, as we left, uh, the consensus was that um, uh, it was a it was a rough road getting there, but they managed to land the plane and they managed to. To come away with uh, some good things, uh, but it was hard getting there, and uh, and I guess that in some ways is to be expected, given that uh, the how complex uh, the issues are, the emotions running high on both sides, whether it's Ukraine or it's the NATO allies, a lot of emotion was expressed, um, and so I think we emerge now with some good things, but I think there's some self-inflicted wounds, and I think there is some bruising on both sides that. Um, are going to affect decision making in the months to come. Right. Did, did uh, um, and I do this uh, at uh, the Royal International Air Tattoo, so I apologize to the audience if there's uh, airplane uh, noise uh, overhead. Um, there was a lot of discussion about Ben Wallace's uh, statement, right? The alliance is is not an Amazon uh, delivery service, and that Ukraine should be more grateful. At least that's how his com uh, comments were 
uh, interpreted, uh, and and many viewed that to be sort of a, a, a bit of a self-inflicted uh, wound. And you're joining us from an airport <laughs> as well uh, as you uh, return back to the states from Vilnius. Um, you know, would, is is any of this stuff lasting damage from your standpoint? Well, it, it's it's lasting. Yes, uh, is it going to be damaging? I think there's there's bruised feelings, and then I think there is a uh you know a a feeling of uh uh a feeling that will lead to maybe tougher negotiations as we go forward into uh the next few months uh you know tougher in terms of expectations um tougher in terms of uh of of dealing with complex problems uh so i i think i'm not sure i would call it damage but there's definitely bruised feelings that will make things more difficult uh but again this is complex we're dealing with war this is something that you've got 32 now 33 um nations involved with this uh, you've got a a ukraine um uh president who has to press forward the way he does he has to uh but also you've got an american um, an administration that's facing a presidential campaign coming up and its own pressures inside, his own personalities inside uh, as well. And so I think, um, and within the alliance, including UK and uh, Ben Wallace, uh, you've, got, you've got these bruised feelings uh, and uh, feeling that you're not being appreciated. Um, I think that's going to pass somewhat. I think we were able to get past that a bit because of the statements yesterday and day before Bush, um, that the speech made by Biden. Uh, at the university was good. So I, I but 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 still, there will be, I think, uh, some bruising uh, that won't go away real fast. And it will just make dealing with each other a, a bit more complicated, a bit more sensitive, if you will. Um, I want to uh, and I should point out that President Zelensky, uh, at least in his public statements, has always been grateful. And I couldn't agree with you more. He has to fight his corner. He needs capability uh, in what is for him an existential uh, fight. Uh, and indeed, as, as we've discussed on this program so many times over the past year and a half, um, that the slow dispersal of aid just means more Ukrainians are dying uh, in this process. Um, well, the, yeah, go on, ahead. On, on that point, you know, um, that you're, that's true. And I think there's a lot of people who acknowledge that and, and others that will give you explanations on why it's so slow. But I think that 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 feeling of being rushed, that the clock is ticking. Uh, that we've got to make decisions faster. Uh, that is helping to cause uh, the, some of the complexity and some of the bruised feelings and some of the lack of sensitivity for the other side. Um, and again, I think we shouldn't be surprised. We're, we're deep in this war now. Um, and this is what happens. It, it, and, and we've got to give each other a break. We got to give Zelensky a break, give him a pass in terms of the emotion he's going to show. And he needs to understand the pressures that we're under, particularly as nations, including the U.S., have to deal with uh, publics and campaigns and budgets and, um, and supply chain problems. Uh, let me uh, talk to uh, get your uh, take. I want to ask you about cluster munitions. But first, in terms of some of the deliverables, right? I mean, so everybody was focused on the, uh, the drama of it, but this was a very consequential summit. You were the first uh, to tell us, and I think a lot of people in our audience, about the new NATO uh, war planning construct that was going to be improved uh, at this. Some disappointed that there was no discussion by the alliance of the role that the alliance would play in Afghanistan, uh, which is something that I've heard from retired general officers uh, who served uh, there, by, uh, by the way, just right here at the Royal International Air Tattoo. From your standpoint, what were, what were the good elements of this? Wendy Gilmore and her team at, uh, as the Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment has been working really, really hard on some of these problems. Kind of walk us through what was actually the positive stuff that came out of this that is actually consequential and is going to move the needle for the alliance uh, for years ahead. Well, first of all, in the, the, the communique has 90 paragraphs, nine zero paragraphs. Each paragraph is usually a, a carrying a topic. So there's probably something in there for everyone, including those who want to see where NATO is on Afghanistan or the, the Balkans or, or that type of thing. So they need to read the, 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 the communique. Uh, but but, but and, and also there has been a complaint that uh, when it comes to these summits and ministerials, it's all about Ukraine. And NATO is more than just Ukraine. And and, um, and so I think there's legitimate beef that some have that their concerns aren't being aren't being heard. But but in terms of deliverables, um, Sweden certainly was one. And that was that's a whole podcast in itself. But I think 
Erdogan got what he really, really, really values, which is the strategic um, arrangement with the U.S., uh, bilateral U.S., Greece, and Turkey to talk about Eastern Mediterranean strategic issues. He really liked that. Uh, he liked having the photo ops of him and, and Biden meeting. He liked that he was being paid attention to and being listened to um, in Washington. That was a big part of this. And, and the F-16s were part of that, too. And that's still in the Congress. But uh, but but that was something that Biden uh, and that 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 Erdogan really wanted when it came to um, his concerns. And, and he wanted that attention from the United States that he has not been getting, particularly from this administration. Sweden also did a lot, too, by the way. Uh, they, they did a lot to, to bring forward uh, answers to a lot of the complaints that uh, Turkey had. So, so, so having them come in was a big deliverable, and it took a lot of work. So it's a, it was a big deliverable. Um, secondly, though, uh, you mentioned the NATO uh, operational plan, the defense plan, something that would be familiar to Cold War uh, audiences. Um, uh, but nations are going to have to put the money towards fulfilling the requirements given to them in terms of where, what their force requirements will be for their part of that front line. So, um, so we'll have to see the 2% is now considered a floor. It's not the ceiling. We got to do better than 2% and a lot of nations haven't even reached 2%. So this is a test of NATO. It's a, this deterrence will be undercut if we don't have a, a, uh, a fulfilled, uh, uh, force plan that 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 the allies uh, that NATO military authorities have now laid before the allies and said this is what we're going to do. You got to do your bit. So so that's that's critical. I think in terms of Ukraine, to go back to Ukraine, um, the, the the NATO uh, Ukraine Council, in fact, is a big deal. And I know it's not well understood on the outside, but this really does give a um, someone described it as NATO membership without the Article Five. But what is what is what, what good is that? But still. That it is, uh, there is some good things there, and they had their first meeting that was actually productive. So, so that that was important. But the G seven, um, uh, the G seven announcement of all the assistance that's going to go to Ukraine by these G seven nations is critical. Now, that's not NATO. It's it's the G seven coming together, and and each each nation will have its own bilateral agreement with uh, with Ukraine, laying out what it is that they're going to do for Ukraine. But that was part of the problem. When this whole thing was rolled out a couple of days ago, you had you didn't have that G7 announcement. You just had what was in the communique, uh, what NATO was saying, which was not well drafted, as I said. Um, and so you didn't have the idea that there's a basket of things. And this G7 part of that basket is a is a key part. So in terms of deliverables for Ukraine, it was a basket of things with the G7 thing being part of it. Uh, the communique language, as good as, it, as good as it ever got, was part of it, but also that the, uh, the NATO Council with Ukraine was part of it too. Um, and as well as listening and, and responding to a lot of concerns that Ukraine has had. The speech that Bush, uh, that uh, Biden made was really important. Um, and, uh, and Zelensky was, was wildly popular in town. He made a speech in the town square that looked like something out of the end of the Cold War days. Um, and they had runners run from Bakhmut in a relay carrying to the town of Vilnius a battle flag from Bakhmut. Uh, so it was there was a lot of emotional things and very emotionally charged a couple of days of events that probably didn't come across to the U.S. or the other parts of the alliance in the news media. But if you were there and you saw this, you saw that there actually was a lot of unity uh, that, that finally came around. We we're going to have disagreements, but at the end of the day, they were able to handle them. They, they unscrewed a lot of misunderstandings between each other. And they were able to have at the end, I think you would say it was a successful summit with deliverables. Um, but there was a there was some bruising to get to that point. And I hope we don't have to go through that again. Let me uh, ask you one last question, because you're about to board an airplane to finally uh, make it home, because I know you've had a terrible trip, Jim. So we really appreciate you uh, being able to join us. There's a lot of discussion about cl uh, cluster uh, munitions. Uh, the president of the United States made very clear that the United States is running low on inventory, the Ukrainians want to cluster munitions, and we authorize them. From your standpoint, is this much about uh, much ado about nothing? Because most military leaders I talk to uh, make it clear that Ukraine is in a fight, and they need as much capability as possible. Uh, well, that's the case. And sometimes you, you got to hold your nose and do something that uh, you would rather that you didn't have to. Uh, using cluster munitions, as I've said uh, in the earlier 
place is that it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Uh, but right now, uh, particularly because we don't have a lot of 155 uh, millimeter ammo to provide and other kinds of ammos as well, um, you know, cluster is needed. Uh, but, but I think if Ukraine can use it responsibly, if you will, uh, and judiciously, uh, we can minimize the impact of civilians running into those bomblets and, and uh, other issues. You know, Ukraine forces having to march through an area that has all these bomblets in it. So, so I think coupled with, um, you know, coupled with uh, uh, the fact that a lot of the U.S. cluster is, is, not, is, is not full of duds, which are the problems, but they're, they're much better manufactured. That coupled with uh, constraint um, and restraint uh, by Ukraine, I, I think we have to go ahead and do it. Um, it, it hopefully, it, it will be the exception to the rule rather than the rule in terms of usage. Let me ask you one last question, which is a tackums. This administration has said no to everything until it says yes to it, <laughs> as we've uh, discussed, right? I mean, we're now talking about pridefully about how we're helping our allies train the Ukrainians on F-16s. Is a tackums going to Ukraine? Um, I think they will. I think they absolutely will. Storm Shadow has proven quite a success. And I think I think they need right now attackums critical. So, yes, I think they will go. I just wish they'd hurry up. Jim, thanks so very much. Bon voyage and look forward to seeing you uh, back uh, in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. Thank you. You too. And a quick word from our sponsors, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, Dove, why don't you jump in? You had a thoughtful piece uh, that you wrote uh, in The Hill that it ain't over until it's over, and you were talking uh, you know, about Turkey and indeed uh, about uh, Sweden. Give us your takeaways on the summit and what it is uh, that you thought were the most important themes that maybe not everybody has been discussing. Well, uh, Jim Townsend uh, obviously was there, and uh, I think his report uh, was uh, very, very useful and helpful. My concern is, first of all, in terms of Ukraine, uh, yes, uh, Zelensky walked back some of his more extreme comments, and we have to understand, I mean, Churchill, after all, was bugging Roosevelt for two years for as much help as he could get because he was at war and we were not. And so Zelensky, as a war leader, has every responsibility to do the same. The problem is that, in a way, Zelensky and Putin are concerned about the same thing, which is what happens in the November 24 elections. Uh, Putin, of course, is hoping that Biden will be out. Zelensky is hoping that Biden will stay in. But Zelensky worries, too, that if Biden indeed no longer will be president in January 25, what happens to all his support? And that lends an, a, a sense of urgency that goes even beyond what one would have expected. And so in that respe uh, respect, it ain't over till it's over. Same thing with Sweden. At the end of the day, uh, Yes, uh, Erdogan got a lot of what he wanted, especially a heck of a lot of publicity and sitting with Biden and all that. But he still doesn't know if he's going to get his F-16s. Menendez apparently is relenting. But remember that Senator Menendez uh, relies and oh, I don't know if he relies, but he gets strong support from uh, the American Armenian community, the American uh, Greek community and the American Cypriot community. And so he'd essentially be double crossing them if he goes ahead with the F-16Bs. Uh, the second thing is the EU. Uh, that is not off the table. The EU promised uh, Erdogan that, yes, they will uh, really look seriously at, at Turkey's application, which has been sitting on the table for about 20 years. But there are a number of countries that aren't in NATO and are in the EU and couldn't give a hoot about Turkey at, at the best. And that's Austria and, and Cyprus. And then, of course, there's Greece. Uh, I don't know that the Greeks are going to turn around. So where does that leave uh, Mr. Erdogan, uh, again, as a, and where does it leave Sweden? Uh, they're not going to vote. The Turkish parliament has to vote on this. People forget just because Mr. Erdogan said it's OK. That doesn't mean that he can't change his mind by the parliament and the parliament, uh, as we as many of us bitterly recall, certainly I do. Uh, we thought we were going to send the fourth infantry division through Turkey in 2003 to hit the Iraqis from the north. Parliament turns around and says, yeah, we'll do it for 10 billion dollars. And it shocked all of us. So 
they could still turn around if Mr. Erdogan feels that he's not getting what he wanted. So with Sweden as well, much as I and everybody that I know hopes Sweden comes in, uh, it ain't over till it's over on that one, too. The great philosopher Yogi Berra uh, and, and his uh, wisdom. Patrick, uh, I want to bring you in. And what, what were the messages that you took from this summit? And more important, what are the messages that China, as well as our uh, partners in the Asia Pacific, uh, took away from it? Right. I mean, I don't think it was as fractious or divided a summit as I think people want to uh, suggest, because I think at the end of the day, there was goodness in it. But from your perspective, what what jumped out and what are the messages that will be more broadly taken? Well, three things. I mean, first of all, is that uh, U.S. allies in Europe and Asia continue to be more connected, more uh, in the direction of interoperability. Um, you saw this with the Japan and South Korea in particular uh, announcing their new um, individually tailored programs with NATO covering a wide range of areas from cyber and strategic comms to uh, looking at uh, maritime security and emerging technologies and, and more. All of that's good. And yet there's still um, division. There's still a gap between Europe and Asia. That's not surprising. Uh, it's amazing how far they've come since the Russian invasion uh, in, in 2022. But at the same time, uh, you know, Macron gave his own press conference, and I don't want to beat up on the French on Bastille Day. But at the same time, you know, when he gives a press conference to say that the Indo-Pacific is not the North Atlantic, um, well, no kidding. Um, that doesn't um, mean that you're not moving closer together because you have common shared interests, and they do. So, so the French are still standing against a, a Tokyo liaison office, even though uh, you know Stoltenberg says that's still on the table for the future. Um, nonetheless, the reality is these allies are moving closer together. And that's the good news. Um, I think, you know, diplomacy is more of an art than a science. And, and I think we see this with um, some of the announcements that are coming out of Vilnius and after Vilnius, whether it's uh, the Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida meeting with the EU uh, on, on Thursday to announce a new dialogue, including on maritime security. That's that's great. What does it mean exactly? Where does that go? Um, you think about the German uh, new China strategy that was released just after the NATO summit. Um, basically mirroring some of the discussions about EU strategy that China's everything, it's a partner, it's a competitor, and it's a systemic rival. But it's clearly putting down a marker that Chinese businesses need to continue to move in the direction of de-risking and diversification, which is right. similar to what the US and Japan and others are doing. Um, so again, more connected, still divisions, um, more uh, art uh, than a science. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the uh, gaps here with the Asia, um, cluster munitions is a is is you know seen through a very different prism, especially in Southeast Asia, but in Asia in general, uh, the Chinese are using this as propaganda narrative. But even in Southeast Asia, there, we had six former American ambassadors to Laos put out an open letter to the president saying this was the wrong decision to send cluster munitions because um, it's been such a painful chapter. In American history, I know, we know the differences uh, that we've already talked about with Ukraine and that Jim talked about. You know, this is going to be used on Ukrainian territory. It's going to be used very carefully and judiciously. Nonetheless, these are cluster munitions, and this is how it's seen in Asia. And it's a different prism. And I, my only point here is that there is a political cost uh, to decisions on the battlefield. And here, there's a bigger political cost uh, in in Asia than is seen in maybe the European theater when it comes to the battlefield discussion about the use of these cluster munitions. I think finally, the China-Russia, um, you know, moving closer together um, by hook or by crook, um, and, and Putin apparently is going to be heading to Moscow. Um, Wang Yi and Foreign Minister Lavrov just met on the margins uh, of the ASEAN Regional Forum, Foreign Ministers meeting in Jakarta this week. Um, and they're talking about multilateralism and democratization of international relations, by which they mean um, anti-U.S. allies and partnerships, anti-minilateralism, anti-U.S. influence in the system, more multipolarity that right. favors uh, Beijing and Moscow. So the message is they're going to continue to grow their cooperation in opposition to what happened in Vilnius. Do we know when Putin is going to be going to Beijing? and what it is uh, that uh, Wang Yi and Lavrov discussed? Well, again, they they um, first of all, it's it's interesting that Chen Gong, the foreign minister, uh, bowed out of the ASEAN Regional Foreign Minister's meeting. He's been missing in action for almost three weeks. His health apparently is ailing. Um, Wang Yi is actually the former foreign minister, and he's the top diplomat in China. 
Um, and he he's like uh, the ever ready bunny. I mean, he's always going. Um, and they signed, uh, you know, a brief statement. But basically, it was uh, propaganda. Um, who knows what they talked about in private? Um, no doubt the Chinese want to get an update on where things stand uh, after the failed rebellion. Um, want to know where what the plans are in Ukraine. Um, but I'm sure they're setting up the meeting, and I don't know the timing of the meeting. It was Moscow right. that announced that Putin would be going to China. By the way, I also find the absurdity of President Macron's statements coming as the French uh, Air and Space Force uh, conducts its largest air deployment to uh, the Western Pacific in, in decades. 19 airplanes. We talked to uh, Brigadier General Marc Le Bouil, uh, who is uh, the commander of uh, that Pegasus 2023 mission that's participating in part of the uh, Mobility Guardian uh, 23 exercise, which involves 70 American airplanes and 3,000 airmen. I mean, just a gigantic uh, regional mobility uh, exercise. Um, in, in terms of the cluster munitions, uh, Patrick and Dove, I'd like to get your sense on this as well. I mean, I, uh, you know, the president of the United States made clear that we're looking at cluster munitions so that the Ukrainians have munitions. Even the United States is running low on artillery shells. And the Ukrainians need to shoot something at Russians, uh, right, aside from a handful of drones. Uh, I mean, what, what, what would the international community have happen here? Gap ammunition supplies to Ukraine in the meantime, wishful thinking, pause the war. I mean, you know, you've got to give them an alternative and they have to shoot something at their enemy. Who's shooting back? Yeah, I mean, Vago, my alternative would have been to twist the arm of our very good friends in Seoul and have them uh, dramatically increase direct uh, 155 millimeter uh, ammo shipments to Ukraine. And then we would have uh, tried to avoid the cluster munitions issue. I mean, if truly that's the only system that can uh, stop the entrenched you know, forces in some areas, maybe there'd be some very small exceptions. But I think uh, having to put the cluster munitions at the front of the time of the Vilnius summit just is uh, it just plays badly in Asia, uh, not to mention the specific issues about uh, humanitarian costs uh, going forward. Uh, let me uh, ask you briefly about other uh, regional headlines. I thought it was incredible that, you know, at the time uh, NATO was meeting at Vilnius and that there was an opportunity in a role with Australians, New Zealanders and Japanese participating as well, that there is an Australian E-7 Wedgetail airplane. That is now operating with NATO to help safeguard uh, the border during this crisis. How powerful a signal is that from your estimation? Well, it's very strong. I mean, this is coming out of the Glaber government of Albanese. Uh, so there's been continuity in Australian politics in advance of uh, strengthening the allied and partner cooperation throughout this region and standing up to China. They've even um, sort of uh, gone soft on how quickly the prime minister of Australia may visit China. This had been played up earlier, but now they, there seem to be complications. Um, and I think, um, you know, uh, Ambassador Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister and now ambassador here in the U.S., uh, spoke eloquently and philosophically at the U.S. Institute of Peace this week on a program looking at the four Indo-Pacific countries uh, participating in their second annual uh, NATO summit. Uh, and there's no doubt that Australia is all in with the long-term need to stand up for free and open Indo-Pacific and in alignment with U.S. policy. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, New Zealand, by the way, was given credit for having traveled the furthest to Vilnius summit. Uh, and there were good jokes about that. But the reality is uh, it's important that New Zealand, which is the country that China likes to pick apart from the other allies, especially the other Five Eyes allies, uh, uh, it has been standing shoulder to shoulder also with a, a new government uh, in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, absolute, uh, absolutely fascinating. And unfortunately, it's a people with a terrific uh, sense of uh, humor. Uh, Dove, um, I, I just want to quickly uh, go to you because I, Patrick is going to time out on, on us uh, in a moment. Um, you know, the your sense on the cluster uh, bomb issue and Macron's statements, I mean, the French military and the rest of the French state is doing a terrific job and the diplomatic corps engaging with the United States, talking about partnership, the important role that France has in the Indo-Pacific nation with two million French citizens in the region. And yet Macron keeps hitting this repeated sour note. Uh, and unfortunately, with uh, Jim, you know, we didn't have as much time to talk about the Pacific element uh, and and the, the French element, but sort of this growing French and even European Cold War style messaging uh, we're, we're hearing. What do, you, what do you make of both of those and, and the signal they send? 
Well, first, I'm totally with Patrick. Uh, and it isn't just the soul that we should be, have been pushing. It, it's Jerusalem. I mean, we've got all kinds of ammunition pre-stocked in Israel. And uh, I understand that some of it's been moved out, but we should move as much out as possible. Um, the Israelis uh, have not gone out of their way to help Ukraine. They've helped in a little way. They're, they're caught between the relationship with Russia and how that's affected uh, uh, relations in Syria. Okay, fine. We can understand that they're caught in the middle. But those, that, those uh, uh, munitions are ours. And I strongly believe just as we can pressure the South Koreans, uh, we certainly should be pressuring the Israelis as well. On the French issue, um, this, there's nothing new here. Uh, for years and years, and I remember back in the Reagan administration when I was in the Pentagon, we were having all sorts of political issues with the French presidency. And yet the, the president's own military assistant would come and visit the Pentagon with quite a bit of frequency. Uh, we've always coordinated with the French military, uh, less so with the Quai d'Orsay, the French foreign ministry. Um, but it's it just seems to be a French habit that the president, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, in the case of Macron, it's a greater extent, uh, expresses uh, gallist sorts of uh, intimations in order for, to uh, rile up uh, public opinion while the day-to-day -day business of military cooperation continues. And I would add one more thing. Who is the biggest threat to Macron right now? Uh, it's coming from the right, not from the left. And so he has to, and, and part of, of, of what's uh, coming from the right is anti-Americanism. So in a sense, he's also playing to those folks who are mildly anti-American, uh, but not uh, extremely hostile uh, as some of the extreme rightists saw. And a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Airspace, that I co-host with our very own J.J. Gertler. Uh, Michael, uh, let me bring this uh, back uh, over to you and congressional response uh, to the cluster munitions uh, issue. Uh, obviously, a lot of Democratic members protested and pushed back against uh, the administration, uh, but not entirely. There were also some Republican members who have some trepidation about this, uh, including, you know, friends of mine who are soldiers who would fall into a right of center camp who just were like, look, I mean, these are just bad and problematic weapons. What are you hearing from members? And more broadly, the message of replenishing arsenals, right? I mean, the administration is asking for more weapons, and yet in some of these markups, the next generation air dominance platform munitions requests are actually being dialed back. Yeah, uh, I, I took note of that as well. Uh, first, you know, to answer your question on the cluster munitions, uh, it's got pretty good support in Congress. I mean, there was an amendment uh, to the NDAA yesterday uh, to try and prohibit the cluster munitions from being sold to Ukraine, and that failed. Uh, but 147 to 276, so has strong uh, bipartisan support. Uh, and I've had a lot of members, you know, ask me about it, and I've had none really uh, be vehemently, you know, uh, on uh, the other side. Uh, now, it is very interesting to see, you know, what the Biden administration is saying that we um, have shortfalls in uh, missiles and, and munitions. Uh, now, I, I, I think they should have addressed that more in, in their budget request. I mean, they did have a proposal in there for multi-year procurement. Uh, which the Appropriations Committee did not agree to, at least on the House. But I still think that even though his, his defense budget grows at 3%, it still does not keep pace with inflation and is not meeting all the needs that we, that we have. And now that we're in this box with the Freedom Caucus uh, and the leadership, uh, you know, that we have to mark up the bill to the number that the president gave us. And next year is where the problem gets worse because we're locked in by statute to only grow at 1%. Now, there is still hope of a supplemental. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not optimistic on that front, but the mantra has changed. There's no more talk of a Ukraine supplemental. The talk is a China supplemental. And I think the hope is in that China supplemental, they can make up for these shortfalls in missiles and munitions, among other things, and also put some uh, aid in, in for Ukraine in there right. as, as well, probably some natural disaster, because uh, it wouldn't be until uh, you know, late fall, or early, early winter that this happens. But uh, right. I think that's still something that still could be addressed. 
let me uh, quickly bring Patrick in uh, because he's going to punch out uh, in uh, a moment. Uh, any uh, last thoughts, uh, Patrick, including uh, China-related legislation that's uh, on the Hill uh, that uh, folks should be paying attention to? Well, I'm heading over to the Pentagon right now to meet with Eli Ratner, who's preparing to testify. And so um, there's a lot of uh, sort of emphasis now on how uh the Pentagon can be as strong as possible in standing up to China and the China challenge uh, at this time. Um, and uh, the, the the criticism that, you know, generally comes against the administration for not doing enough in some areas. Um, I think Dr. Ratner is, you know, one of those officials that is widely trusted on both sides of the aisle. Um, right. So his words will be taken seriously. Interestingly, he just met on Wednesday of this week with Ambassador Xia Feng, the Chinese ambassador to the United States, um, and uh, once again to talk about the need for some kind of guardrails on uh, reckless maneuvers and dangerous maneuvers from the Chinese, among other issues. Uh, it's not clear that any progress was made, but I'm sure he will be, uh, Dr. Ratner will be asked about this uh, at, during his uh, testimony. Um, I think the other things that come out of here on, on China is what China's been doing in the South China Sea. The Philippine Armed Forces have talked about the alarming increase in maritime vessels, Coast Guard vessels, also some uh, PLA naval vessels around Reed Bank, the uh, energy-rich uh, area in the Philippine EEZ, and this is this you know this is coming this week on the seventh anniversary of the arbitral panel uh, in the Hague that ruled uh, largely in favor of the Philippines' claims there and against the Nine Dash Line claims of China in the South China Sea. Um, the Philippines Foreign Ministry has just put a new website up uh, saying that there's official, quote unquote, information here about Manila's arbitration victory. Um, I'm sure that has strong support from the United States. But, you know, China's acting with uh, with sort of physical force. Uh, the Philippines continues to use more legal and diplomatic uh, pushback while uh, they do uh, move forward with the United States on these enhanced defense cooperation access uh, sites. Uh, very important. It's got China's attention. Um, I think also what's happened in Thailand is worth worth noting, at least, you know, you had uh, an amazing democratic victory for the uh, U.S. educated reformist uh, Pita, um, but he has just lost the parliamentary vote. This is only a first go round, but it doesn't signal uh, that he's going to be successful necessarily uh, in the next round. Um, and that just shows you that the Constitution, as it's weighted toward the military, is biased against this democratic uh, return to democracy uh, in civilian rule. Um, so we'll see, even that, even though General Prayut, the President Prayut, has announced that he is uh, stepping down from politics. So uh, who replaces him in his party uh, is an open question as well. Uh, and finally, we have to note the North Korean uh, launch of a solid fuel uh, Hwasong-18 uh, ICBM on Wednesday. This is, uh, you know, can reach anywhere in the world except maybe, you know, Argentina. Um, it, it is a solid fuel ICBM. It's the second launch of this uh, test of this system since April that was the first. Um, the North Koreans have come a long way in six years since they launched and announced the, the completion of their ICBM uh, program. Obviously not the completion. It was just the first ICBM that they had tested successfully back then. Um, and they're doing this as well as threatening U.S. reconnaissance aircraft as they encroach uh, near North Korea. I think this time, as I've written this week, needs to be taken seriously because uh, North Korea is looking to up the ante uh, and they've got China's backing on this because China also wants to push back U.S. ships. This goes back to this question of, that you know, Assistant Secretary Ratner is trying to uh, figure out, can we negotiate uh, guidelines for keeping our patrols safe when they're in international airspace and waters? And you've got North Korea, China, and other countries pushing back saying, those aren't your waters or airspace under our interpretation of our need for a sphere of influence and how we're going to interpret our actions. And so this is a, 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 you know, remains a very important time. We saw major air drills across the median strait uh, in the Taiwan Strait this week as well. So you're going to see close encounters uh, in the air and on the sea, North Korea, China, yet yeah, Russia in, in the European theater, and all of these potentially could be an incident that could, could escalate. Right. Uh, and I should point out, North Korea is testing ICBMs, whereas India uh, is launching a peaceful mission uh, to the far side of the moon. Right. So um, uh, and we wish uh, the Indian space program all the luck in the world. Uh, in what is uh, a very, very challenging mission. And I think their last mission was some 15 years ago uh, that it's ended a, uh, yeah. un unsuccessfully. 
it's a big step forward. And by the way, I should add that and it's good to see Treasury Secretary Yellen having not succeeded much with diplomacy in China, uh, heading toward India uh, and then heading toward Vietnam, two countries where we're going to be doing right. a lot of friend shoring and there should be a lot of success there. I've got to run. Uh, thanks so much. Yes. Thanks very much. Give my best, uh, give our best to Eli and uh, tell him to keep up the great work uh, as part of a team that includes Kurt Campbell and so many others across the administration. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Dov, um, I want to come to you uh, and uh, you get the last word. Obviously, a lot of turmoil uh, in and among Russian general uh, officer, uh, uh, you know, Surovikin, uh, still detained. Uh, a number of general officers, right? A large number of general officers were actually detained and interrogated. Uh, some were fired, um, you know, and, and uh, again, five days after, um, you know, just five short days after the aborted mutiny, Vladimir Putin met with Wagner boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, as well as the Wagner commanders. And it now looks like the Wagner guys have a role again in the Ukraine war. Right. And at the time, there were concerns about whether or not Putin has been destabilized or whether or not this was kind of a gigantic Moskirovka, uh, Moskirovka operation. Is that what we're basically seeing? I mean, was Prigozhin, for example, helping Putin draw out the anti-Putin forces in his midst? I mean, how, how do you make sense of all of this as somebody who's looked at Russia uh, and followed it for a long time? Well, um, the answer is it's very hard to make sense out of it. It could be any of the above that you laid out. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, at least one senior general, a uh, two-star, uh, criticized uh, what was going on in Ukraine and uh, was fired. Uh, and that's, that's clearly legitimate. And that's not uh, Russian uh, game playing. I mean, he, he was fired, full stop. Uh, but whether it was an effort to uh, flush out uh, other generals, whether it was uh, an effort instead to uh, simply uh, make peace with uh, Prigozhin, because frankly, they can't operate without without him in some respects. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, and and uh, I don't know, think we're going to know for some time. I mean, we're back to, you know, Kremlinology. We're trying to figure out what's going on back there. And, you know, just as in the old days, uh, we just don't know. What we do know is General Ivan Popov, uh, who was a commander of uh, a combined arms army, I think the 58th, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he basically said, look, this war is, is just going wrong. And he gets fired. Now, what's interesting is that he hasn't been shot, <laughs> which already is, is progress in Russia. Um, but we don't know. We don't know about Surovikin either, by the way. Uh, they keep quoting his daughter as saying that he's okay. And uh, his wife keeps saying she hasn't heard from him. It's now several weeks, I think three weeks. Um, he's being interrogated. God only knows what that means. Um, the mayor of Moscow said he visited three jails uh, and Surovikin wasn't there. But we don't know if that's true. Um, we are... We are back uh, to, if, if you don't want to call it the, the KGB, you can call it the Tsarist Okhrana, uh, which right. was their secret police. But right. that's where we are with Russia these days. Uh, indeed. But, you know, you could argue it is a slightly kinder and gentler Russia because, you know, the shootings aren't that prompt and the families aren't charged the cost of the bullets, uh, which was a nice KGB touch. Anyway, well, uh, the, gentlemen... only, the only problem, frankly, is that Russia may not have enough money for the bullets. Ladies and gentlemen, Dove Zakai, put your hands together. <laughs> That's good. That was good. Uh, okay, just to uh, to remind, uh, many Finns believe that had they not run out of ammunition as quickly as they did in 1939, they could have held out much longer during the Winter War. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend uh, and a great week. And look forward to having you guys back on the program next week. Thanks very much.